Welcome to the Support Recovery Podcast, where we speak with parents, counselors, ministers, and other professionals to provide you with the most effective ways to support your loved one who's struggling with addiction or any other life-controlling issue. Recovery Podcast. We're having a good time here in the studio as we're uh, getting everything revved up here. And we're going to talk kind of about a, a huge topic here that is very close to all of our hearts here, which is the role of faith uh, or spirituality in recovery. And uh, today I'll be hosting. I'm Michael. I know you guys have heard me quite a bit. And um, we're actually going to be interviewing Mark McDonald again. So welcome, Mark. It's good to see you. And uh, Skyler, who is typically one of our hosts, we're also going to be interviewing him on this as well. Because uh, these topics are are uh, pretty near and dear uh, to these guys. So, what does spirituality mean in the context of recovery? Okay. Well, first of all, in the broadest sense, it's an understanding of who we are, our place in our life, our connection to others, our connection to the world around us, and how we find meaning in life's mysteries. So, when we're looking at spirituality, what we have to look at is the fact that spirituality emphasizes the highest capacity that we have as humans to connect to a power greater than ourselves. It is that opportunity to connect with our God, with one another, and with our world. And mostly so that I can just find out how that connection works in me with those others. Yeah, and I would say, you know, in my view, spirituality provides the why behind the what of recovery. So there's a lot of, you know, and that doesn't mean that it has to look like a traditionally religious or spiritual avenue that you're going down. But if you don't have a why behind the what of recovery, if you don't have any reason to recover, um, I I don't see how it can be a long-term thing for you. And so spirituality provides an ultimate why, an ultimate reason behind why you would be even going in the direction you're going in the first place. And I think the other piece that we need to look at in spirituality and recovery is that one of the things that our behaviors have done, whether we call them sin, whether we call it addiction, it doesn't matter, has separated us from the power we need to truly learn how to live. And what spirituality does is it plugs us back into that powerhouse. Um, okay, so in, in just in the context of you know what we're talking about, I mean, I very much, and I'm very proud to be a Christian. Uh, I think Jesus Christ is my personal Lord and Savior. Um, You know, so what we do, what I do from a career standpoint um, is, you know, we work with people dealing with recovery, but we're doing it through the lens of faith. Um, So that is the foundation of of what we're dealing with uh, here. So in in that mindset, in that stride, if you will, what is the role of spirituality in an individual person's road to recovery? What have you seen in that in that experience? And Skylar, I think I want to start with you because I know you talk with a lot of families who are dealing with very traumatic situations, um, and the, all, most of them that you're talking to want a to want faith incorporated into recovery for their loved ones. You know, what is your your what has your experience been in that? Yeah, so my experience has been, uh, you're right, a lot of families do want to see their loved one recover within their particular faith tradition. Um, I think spirituality is really essential to recovery because a huge part of recovery, in my opinion, is recovering a healthy understanding of of what spirituality even is, what who God is. Um, if your understanding of uh, God is that he's angry with you, that he's, that he's harsh, uh, that you're never going to be enough for him, um, you, it's going to be hard to find motivation within your own spiritual journey, your own journey of recovery. 
and I think that can actually be difficult because some families have a certain certain spiritual uh, certain idea about spirituality or, or religious persuasion that they think this person is supposed to recover under. When in fact, sometimes that may come with a lot of baggage. It may come with the baggage of uh, a bad experience at church, or it may come with a you know, um, it may come with all kinds of things that aren't helpful to that person's recovery. So spirituality at its best is uh, helping people understand that God is love, um, and that. Um, Jesus is not someone who's, you know, pointing the finger at them saying, turn or burn, uh, but he's someone who's inviting them into abundant life. Uh, and he's really, the recovery process is an incredible analogy for the spiritual life. I don't even know if you call it an analogy, they're almost the same thing. The recovery process and the spiritual life of a Christian can almost be seen as the same thing in my view. And I agree with you. I think one of the challenges we oftentimes have, though, is that when we think of faith, we see faith as such a big thing. And the same way with spirituality. And the reality of us is, of it is, most of us don't have that. When we start on this journey of faith or recovery, we just have this one little bit of hope hmm. and a belief that this could possibly work. And based on that belief, we try it, and that gets reinforced, and it continues to grow. Yeah. As it grows, so does our faith. So we can believe for more things in regards to how we get better. Yeah. But I think one of the challenges is that people think that it's an all-or-nothing thing, and it is not. All it takes is that spark to get things going. Yeah. I think it's important to, to mention, you know, a lot of people, when we talk about the context of faith, we talk about the context of spirituality, right? Uh, I think a lot of people's thought process is, i got to get everything cleaned up so I can be presentable, right? And you talk about like maybe bad experiences for, for people. So it could be the Sunday experience, if you will, is we're all wearing shirts and ties and we can't have dirty shoes or whatever because we can't go in the sanctuary if that's the case. Um, and Skylar, from what I'm hearing from you is it's kind of the opposite of that, is we need to come as we are because the Father is inviting us in, saying, I love you, man. Um, so as we talk about the role of spirituality, can recovery be successfully carried out Without spirituality, I think everyone is inevitably spiritual. Like they, you can't avoid being a spiritual person. So you may your your persuasion may be that there is no supernatural, that there is no um, that there is no God, and that's that's totally fine. I think you can actually recover uh, from from addictions. I think people have not be, being atheists or things like that. But I think inevitably people have some form of spirituality. They have something transcendent that some ultimate cause that they believe in that they think is worth that recovering over. Um, so in that sense, I would say, no, uh, you have to have something ultimate. You have to some, have some reason, some why behind your what. Um, so I, you know, in, in a strict sense, I mean, I, I am a Christian. I, I do believe that, um, I, I believe, and I fall in line with the Christian tradition. So I would say that is personally, I think that's the best way, but I, people do recover from addiction without traditional understanding of spirituality, but I would still call it some form of spirituality. Yeah, I agree. I don't think anybody can find true recovery without some level of psychic change. Mm -hmm. Now, you're not using the term psychic, the term psychic as like your Professor Xavier from the X-Men, no. right? So, <laughs> de so define, define what you mean by that. Having had a spiritual experience that creates change. Okay. So that creates an emotional change. It creates a, a change in our thought processes, in the behaviors that we do in our interaction with one another. We have to have that change, that spiritual experience, that psychic change. Otherwise, we stay pretty miserable. Yeah. So I agree 
with Skylar in that we all inherently want that connection and we have to find a way to make that happen. Yeah. Otherwise we stay in this cycle that just continues to perpetuate, you know, with us. And although we may never drink or use or return to that behavior, we don't find the joy or the freedom that is really available through recovery. Yeah. And I think that that only happens as a result of that change. Whether we call that change a psychic change, a spiritual experience, salvation, we have tons of different names for it, Mm -hmm. but the result is the same. Yeah. I have been changed, and as a result of that, I'm working toward transformation. Yeah. And I know for me, I want want people to be reconciled to Jesus Christ. That is my heart. Um, You know, I know when, when I go through God's Word... And I think about like your your John three sixteen context, right? God loved the world that He sent His Son, right? And I think about that just the word love, because you said you know God is love. First John four eight, I believe, is is uh, uh, God is love, right? So if that's the case, uh, I love connecting those things with First Corinthians thirteen, which is love. Like love is what love is all these things, right? And if that if God loves the world and He is love, He knows these things. And First uh, Corinthians thirteen five talks about how love keeps no record of wrong. So it's not a matter of we got to get things cleaned up first to come to Him. It's a process of coming to the Father and saying, you know, I need I need help. And yes, we need the spiritual, but there's people here in the physical that are willing to walk alongside people to take them on that journey, uh, which I think is just is really powerful. So. Um, Sorry, that was my soapbox, guys. I just, I got, I got to throw that out there. <laughs> so, uh, so in in the recovery field, uh, in in what we do, there's an increasingly popular phrase that basically says the opposite of addiction is connection. Okay, so what does this mean, and and how does spirituality provide this connection? Well, and again, the the overall basis for spirituality is about my connection with myself, my understanding of the world around me, those people around me, and my connection to a power that transcends my own understanding, okay? I need someone outside of me that is bigger, that has the direction I need, that can provide order to all that. So as a result of that, what addiction has done or what any life-controlling problem does is it begins to separate me from that. My shame and guilt even separates me more. So the greater that disconnect, the the worse my life-controlling problem becomes because one of the things that that life-controlling problem does is it replaces that sense of belonging to a power greater than me. Okay? So what we have to do is we have to find a way to plug back in. And people find that journey through multiple paths. Um all resulting in one thing, and that is creating this change internally. Yeah, and I, and I would like to answer that question really specifically with the Christian community in mind, because I think it's really interesting. Um, there's there's oftentimes this attitude towards recovery or even what's seen as sin or, or moral failure that just kind of says, well, that person's a Christian, right? They've been saved. They said the sinner's prayer, so what's the problem? Or even they've been filled with the Holy Spirit. There's all these steps that people expect. You know, you've taken these steps, you're a Christian, so why are you struggling with this? And I think something maybe we've lost sight of is that the the goal of Christian faith is not simply that you said a prayer and now you're saved and you're not going to hell. The goal of Christian faith is union with God. It, it is ultimately connection, like, like, that, uh, like that phrase says. Ultimately, that's the point, is that we have 
uh, strong union with God. St. Augustine said, uh, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and we are restless until our souls find rest in you. Um, which means that without that connection, we will continue to be restless. We'll find drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever, to fill that restlessness until we make, until we have divine union, you know. And uh, so that, and that's something that is always increasing. It's not something, it's not like, uh, you know, hey, I, things were bad for me, but now I'm walking in divine union with God, boom. But it's something that you progress in and you grow in. And so I think that's really pertinent for especially Christians who are considering how to approach recovery and supporting their loved ones who are in recovery. I love that. Yeah. I've never heard that that yeah. quote before. Man, that's, that's wonderful. Um, okay, so continuing down this, this concept, right? So we're talking about how the heart is restless. Um, the heart's going to look for things, right? I mean, we've got Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, right? We've got people who have been there, done that, search for meaning, meaningless, meaningless, life is meaningless, right? We've, they've done that, and they have found that the hope is in our salvation, right? So how can spirituality provide in a healthy way what substance abuse was providing in an unhealthy way? For me personally, I think that substance abuse became the God. Uh, and what we know scientifically in the brain is that the same exact um, part of the brain is excited by alcohol and drugs that gets excited with spiritual experiences. Mm. They've done PET scans to show the exact same area. So whenever you're utilizing in a life-controlling problem and it's paying off, it's filling that void or that restlessness, and it excites a certain part of the brain. Mm. So that's why replacing the excitement I was getting from the drugs with something that is more powerful and a greater payoff has to take place or we won't maintain it. Yeah, um, and I would very much agree with that. I think, I think that God is inviting us on a journey, and, and all the questions I'm answering, I'm inevitably just having a hard time not answering really strictly from a Christian perspective. That's just the way I think about it. But um, I think God's inviting us on a journey. And so what drugs and, and, uh, or any addiction with anything, uh, it provides you a quick fix. It provides you a fast escape from your pain. And I think spirituality, I think healthy Christian spirituality uh, reminds us that God is the one who comes in human form, um, that he deals with all the difficulty of human life, and that ultimately he surrenders himself on a cross and endures great pain, and he doesn't tap out of it, you know, um, that, that Jesus could have called many angels to get him out of the situation he was in. He could have drank the wine that the soldiers offered up to him, but instead he, he endured till the end all of the pain of that situation. And so the Christian faith is actually offering us something really valuable in that it's not offering us an escape like all these addictions offer us or all these other compulsions we could have. It's offering us a life that's deeply integrated, that lives life right in the middle of that pain, but lives well and can find the rest in God like Augustine was talking about. Um, so instead of having to indulge or escape the pain of life, Christ is with us in it. Um, and it provides for us a depth that no matter how hard we try to fill uh, with, with any, anything else, whether, what, whatever the addiction or compulsion is, uh, it provides a depth in meeting that need uh, that those things cannot. So, Mark, you've, you consider yourself uh, someone who incorporated faith into the recovery. Correct. In your, you said 30, 33 years, 36 years, 36 years, right? In those 36 years, once you became a Christian, once you gave your heart to the Lord, 
did all of those compulsions or desires just magically go away? No. In fact, I struggled with it for about two years and just gave up. And what happened whenever I surrendered at that point was not to God. Mm. I just decided that since it wasn't going away, that why bother anymore? And my drinking went from a fifth a day to about two fifths a day within mm. a year. Wow. So the compulsion actually increased yeah. after that point. And why why? Like what what do you think would attribute to that? Which part? The fact that it increased? Or that you just that that the compulsion was still there. Because and I ask you that because of this. Because I think one of the, the misconceptions in our faith is I come to Christ and it's gone. Right? And Christ doesn't guarantee that. God's word doesn't guarantee that, but he's gonna walk through it with us, right? So your experience was that. Your experience was it didn't magically go away. We've, we've interviewed people on this podcast, like Bill, uh, who was one of the first people we interviewed. When he gave his heart to the Lord, those compulsions were gone. That can happen. You didn't experience that. I did not experience it that way. So, it, so take us through that. Well, for me, mine was a struggle of crying out to God, having other people praying for me. And it just really seemed like, for lack of a better term, the heavens were brass. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't finding the relief that I needed from all that because within two hours after leaving church, I was back to drinking. Mm. And it had nothing to do with the lack of power on God's side. And I don't think it had anything to do with my lack of surrender Mm -hmm. at that point. I truly believe it was a part of the journey that God had to send me through so that whenever I found sobriety and I started working in a recovery field... Mm -hmm that I would have experienced both of those. Yeah. But I know whenever I gave up, the enemy was telling me all sorts of bad things about me and about my relationship with God and all kinds of different things. But primarily, I just felt unworthy. And if I couldn't be worthy enough, then why bother? Wow. And it took about... About six years from then wow. to finally get back to a place where my faith and what I knew uh, in recovery could actually combine. Yeah. And once it combined, I found a whole new level of freedom for me that I couldn't find in either one alone. So do you think like maybe it didn't click completely the first go around and then you went through this process and all of a sudden there was like a deeper clicking, if you will, of, oh man... There's something more to this that I wasn't realizing, or... I think what happens is we all want the quick fix. And my problem with quick fixes is I think I can go back and do the same thing and find the same fix. Ah. Okay? And God knows that about my personality. Yeah. So mine truly needed to be this battle to really get what I needed to get. Yeah. Plus, the other part to that was that two years of crying out to God, begging God, was a part of removing so much, all the crap that I had in my own life that I had to get through because I had so many other religious challenges in regards to that because of certain religious abuses that I had had and certain other um, ritualistic things that were a part of it that I had to shed and I really could not just come to the place where 
I don't think I could come to the place where God could totally remove that at the time for me and make me effective. So you came from a, a place of, uh, I'll use the word, the church hurt almost. Yes. And that it, those experiences really kind of jaded you in the process of recovery until you really kind of met, met the real Jesus. I had met the real Jesus at 16. Yeah. But again, one of the problems is I think everybody thinks that that meeting changes everything. Yeah. And for many of us, it doesn't. Hmm. For many of us, it's a journey that we have to go through in letting go of this and picking up that and exchanging a whole lot of things because of the fear that we live in. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the rich young ruler when you think about it, right? So the, the, the guy comes up to Jesus. I have followed your commandments. Right? I did all this stuff, right? What else? Sell it all and come follow me. And he walks away. So that was kind of your experience. Absolutely. Where you were I did everything I knew to do. Right. And the condemnation was still felt inside. Nothing was really finding me the kind of freedom that I needed. Yeah. But I was locked away in a lot of different pr- levels of prison. Yeah. Internally. Yeah. And it took a while before any of that could really be... Um, that's the word I want to use. Before I could really find the ability to let go of it because yeah. I always wanted to hold on to something just in case yeah. I needed a good excuse yeah. to fail. So those church hurt scenarios, those were individual encounters. Those were times that you could just distinctly remember. And then that kind of bled into the hurt and the recovery and the growing process that you were going through. And that was kind of, you had right. really and I didn't know it things. at the time. Okay. That was the thing is yeah. that I, I wasn't aware of that until later whenever I could reflect on a lot of those things. Yeah. Um, because I needed to know that I was not condemned. Yeah. Because I had been. Yeah. I needed to know that God could accept me yeah. because I'd been preached at that I could not be accepted by yeah. God with what was going on in my life. Yeah. I didn't have a clue about any of that at 16. Yeah. At 24, yeah. I became really aware of it. I think it's an interesting thing. I I've, I highly value when people have those kind of in, those moments of instantaneous del, you know delivery from addiction. I, my, my own parents talk about it that way, that, that that's how it happened for them. Um, but I, I think some, a way that we can kind of begin to re-see this is that absolutely happens and it absolutely happens the way it's happened for Mark, um, that it's a progressive thing, but either way, the call of Christ to someone is not, uh, I'm going to make your life better right now. And that's why I'm doing this. He's actually calling us to take up our cross and follow him. So recovery or even, uh, whether it's progressive or instantaneous, it's an invitation to continue that work in all the areas of your life. So, you know, if, you, if you're an alcoholic and Christ walks with you through alcoholism, it doesn't end there. It goes to how you treat your family, how you, uh, how you work, how you do all things. Um, so that's, it's, rather than seeing that as the end goal, recovery is just the beginning of the, of the, of the process of following Jesus. Um, and as far as as far as church hurt goes, I think that's a that's a huge deal. Something that I think is is really interesting is um, in my role. I when I talk to guys um, who have grown up in the church and they know the Bible back to front, um, oftentimes there is a they're kicking back against the tradition they came from, and it doesn't matter which tradition it is. If it's 
if they were Catholic, they kick against that. If they were Baptist, they kick against that. Uh, whatever it is, and I think it, that it will be really important for the people who are coming around them to understand this is actually has to be part of the process for them. We have to let that be part of the process. Oftentimes, we want to say we want to justify, oh, this is why our tradition holds up, and why you just need to jump back on board. Um, but the truth is, anytime we've been uh, told this is the way it is, you need to st- step in line, understand this is how it works. Everyone kicks against that, and so there is some. There is some. I think in a, in a healthy spirituality, there is a season at least of someone questioning the tradition they came from and maybe having to step away for a little bit from the language and the and the culture of that season or of that tradition. And maybe they don't return to that particular tradition. Maybe they do. Um, but I think as family members and people who are supporting that, that loved one, we have to be open to that and, and willing to hear them out and willing to let them do that. I know we talk in recovery a lot about this, the parable of the prodigal son. I think that the most important thing we need to think about in the context of that is when the son walks away and you're talking about if people walk away from faith or whatever, the dad did not chase them down the driveway in the rich young ruler. When he walks away after Jesus says, you know, sell everything, come follow me. And he doesn't do it. Jesus doesn't go chase him. You, I think we as Christians need to know where we stand in our beliefs. And once we've spoken truth in reality, that other person is accountable for it now. Like, they know what it is. And the neat thing in the story of the prodigal son was the kid who left, he knew where his dad's house was. He didn't have to ask directions. I mean, at least it's not in the parable. Like, he came back home. And the, and the father runs down the driveway, and, and, you know, we all know the story. So I think it, it's important that we could do things, quote-unquote, in the name of Christ. But maybe we're not. It's selfish sometimes because we want it more for them for selfish reasons as opposed to we want them to come in and encounter Christ because, man, I want them to experience truth because I know what it's been in my life. I know what, how, how I've experienced. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So how can, how can we support the pe- people in our lives and our families who are going through recovery and are, are pursuing spiritual growth? How do we support that? Well, the first thing I would say is quit trying to make them believe the way that you do. They have a set of beliefs that will work for them, and God molds that. Instead of it being technique, I truly believe that it's about that relationship. Mm. Because that's where we find that value, is in that connection with and the relationship with God. Not so much in whether if I do this, 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 and this, that life's going to be great. Techniques are great in some things. I don't know that it works so well in spirituality. Yeah. Yeah, you can't really argue someone to, and you can't convince someone to believe what you believe, really. It's really more of you live your own spiritual life, and you leave an open invitation for them to experience that with you if they want to. But you, at the end of the day, you can't argue anybody into believing what you believe, and, and it's I, not helpful. Right, and I think that we have to model our lives in such a way that it creates a desire for them to experience what we experience Yeah. in our spirituality, in our recovery, in our lives as a whole people should want what we have they should want to be where we are and if we don't create that kind of desire I don't know that people will go there Um, however I can tell you that there will be some people who will run away from you trying to force them to do that and they may appear to be compliant with what you're telling them to do but it's not creating the kind of change that needs to be made. Yeah, I, 
there's a psychologist, his name's Edwin, I think his name's Edwin Friedman. He wrote a book called Failure of Nerve. He's, and he studied and he taught on family systems theory. And something that he points out that I think is really interesting, especially when it comes to spirituality, is that any time that you're coming at someone with a posture of chasing them down or trying to grab onto them or trying to teach them something or trying to speak to them from the outside in, um, his argument is that it will never work. They will never hear that. But rather instead, you have to do what Mark just said. You have to create desire, and your posture has to be one of almost, I wouldn't say passivity, but receptivity. So they have to be the one coming to you. They have to be the one coming to you saying, your spiritual life seems like something real, and I'm interested in understanding it. You know, So it's really, I think the postures have to change too in, in the way that we support our, you know, those, uh, our, our loved ones who are struggling with addiction or life-controlling issues. It can't be, let me teach you how this works. It has to be, here's an open invitation to my, my spiritual life. And I think the other thing is we don't necessarily have to accept what they're doing or what they are saying they believe but we still have to accept the individual. Yeah. And there's a huge difference in those two factors. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with that. And I, I like, I like that point, Mark. And I think it really bleeds into the next uh, thought that we want to discuss. Um, you know, there's a lot of circles out there. There's a lot of trains of thinking. Um, there's a lot of people who think, you know, their, their road is the only road, right? I mean, the Suboxone treatment centers, some of them will say we're it. Nobody else. The short-term uh, clinicals will say, we're it. No one else. The long-term will say, we're it. No one else. Uh, the ones who find it on their own, we're it. The 12-step AA, right? Everybody's got kind of their, their views, right? So there's a lot of uh, opposing views, even in recovery and in spirituality. You know, when you look at the landscape of grant writing, man, the government wants to give money to recovery. They ain't going to give a nickel of it if there's anything faith-related in it. And there's statistics that show stronger success rates of faith when faith is incorporated in recovery. Um, so there's this, there's this like tension that seems to be out there with all these different things. Um, how, how do we reconcile these things? How do we reconcile to Christians who think counseling is ridiculous, yet the Holy Spirit is, our, is the greatest counselor, right? How do we reconcile... <laughs> incorporating faith, how do we reconcile letting people see what Christ has done in us so that we can, when they come to us and ask that question, we're ready to answer those things. How do we reconcile those things? Because this problem of addiction is enormous, and there's more of it to go around than there are even resources available to throw at it, right, at the end of the day. And the greatest form of recovering, we've talked about this ultimately, is discipleship, getting in there and doing it with them. That's Christ's model, whether you want to call it faith or not. I don't care if you're a state-run thing or a faith-based thing. You are doing what Jesus did. How do these things reconcile and work together towards what we're dealing with? I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, Mark, you've been in this—I how, how know 36, almost 36 years of recovery. You've been working in the field for a long time. Almost 30. I mean, you've seen this. I mean, man, you bang your head against the wall sometimes with some of these conversations that you have. How do you reconcile these things together? How, how do people get on the same page? I think the first part of it is that we have to let our ego and our arrogance go. Everybody wants to be right. Everybody wants to think they've cornered the market on how it works. But anytime you operate from a place of exclusivity 
and you exclude those people who may have chosen a different path, you undermine the very viability of what you're saying. Recovery is about inclusivity. The people who I include in my life, it's not about those people who I remove. It's about including those people who may not necessarily believe the same way I believe, but who have great truth to offer me in regards to how I can apply what's going on in my life. So whenever I get past my own ego and my own arrogance and I include people in my life, recovery happens. Anytime my ego and arrogance kicks in and I begin to exclude people, I start operating from a deficit again. And unfortunately, that deficit leads to stressors and other compulsive behaviors. Yeah, I mean, something that ever since I've known you, Michael, you've always uh, echoed that that statement, uh, all truth is God's truth. Mm-hmm. And I strongly agree with you on that, that um, as Christians, when we encounter something, whether it's in therapy or in the 12-step movement or science or whatever, we don't need to immediately see it as a threat to our faith if it seems to clash a little bit with what we have known typically, maybe we can pull back and say, maybe my interpretation of things is off. And it's, and it's about a posture of humility. It's, a, it's about saying, maybe my interpretation isn't 100%. It's not saying God's word isn't 100%. It's not saying that uh, what Christianity teaches is not 100%. It absolutely is. Maybe my personal interpretation of how I've been seeing this is off. And so it's a matter of choosing to be humble and reevaluating based on the information that's kind of come to light. You know, and not being scared of it, not seeing other people as the enemy, um, and not seeing other ideas as enemies to the faith. Um, and I think, I think if you if you take some time and you examine a lot of uh, what what whether it's new medical uh, research is, is showing or the twelve step movement, whatever, a lot of it coincides well with the faith. Mm. It's just a matter of taking a step back and reexamining. Which it's a difference in language. Yes, and we have to get past the verbiage to see the truth in those spiritual principles. Yeah. But that requires our willingness to be open-minded and allow people to really talk to us instead of only trying to hear what confirms what I believe. I think this is actually a really, it's an incredible opportunity for us to examine maybe where there is idolatry in our own lives in a pretty real way. Because what it means is if, if we see uh, that someone believes something we don't and we immediately see that as the enemy, we may have gotten to a point where we make language about God, language about spirituality, the equivalent of God. And anybody, I mean, any Christian theologian or any theologian in general will tell you any language we use about God is just scratching the surface of barely telling you anything about who God is. Um, so in that sense, I mean, it's really us setting up our language and our systems of understanding as I, the idols that we worship rather than the God who's behind that language. Um, and so it takes, a, it takes some humility. Which and I, I, the scripture that comes to mind is the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, your C.S. Lewis um, said, uh, be careful using infinite words on non-infinite things, because if you use infinite words on non-infinite things, then what words will you use to describe the infinite? Um, and I'm like, just yeah, that's right. <laughs> you're, you're right on. Yeah. You know, and and I think there are going to be people who hear this. Um, that might hear what you just said and almost be offended by it. Of what do you mean there's idolatry? What do you mean? But truth is truth. And when we are encountered with it, I believe this wholeheartedly. So when Bill spoke uh, way back, like the first podcast we did, you could think back 
how long ago it was now, right? Um, I know that he was on a on a search for truth. He was searching it out. Me as as a believer, as a Christian, I will never doubt that if if man is looking for truth, he's going to encounter Christ at some point. It's going to lead to that because these truths that we have, these earthly truths, they only go so deep. And then we go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, there's articles I've even read now from these scientists who are going, man, the universe is way bigger than we thought. More of this is actually pointing to intelligent design <laughs> than just a natural random occurrence. So scientists are even doing that, and, and people fear these languages. When I, I hear people talk science, I just go, okay, all you did was show me how God did it. That's where my brain goes. It doesn't offend me. I just think that's cool. So the xylem and phloem in a plant is how it gets the nutrients it needs. Well, the Lord set that into motion. Sweet. That's that's pretty cool design, you know? And then everything we seem to know from a scientific standpoint, there always seems to be a layer deeper. We're never at a place where we have complete understanding. And to me, that's where what you're saying is anything that we try to describe the creator of the universe about, we're scratching the surface, man. Because we have a very finite view of the, of the infinite, um, so yeah, that truth is that truth, and I think we as believers can't be afraid to enter conversations with people who don't believe the same way, or go check out their locations, go to the Suboxone Clinic and see what they're doing. Might be great, might not be great. You know, go and talk to the local counselors, go hear their hearts, so that if you're referring people to someone, you know who they are. You know, you can trust them. I hope that not everybody needs long-term recovery. I would love it if people can find the resources where they're at, that they don't have to be pulled out of the systems they're in, and everybody can grow. I think that would be a beautiful thing. So I believe wholeheartedly, Skylar, I echo that, and and Mark, I think we just all need to come to the table and say, look, man, this is the problem. And then we have an opportunity for the people who might not be believers in that group to share our faith with them because now we have collateral with them. And they go, man, Mark really knows what he's talking about. I got to know more about that. How did you get to this point? Man, let me share my faith. You know, and we can't become arrogant in those things. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so how does spirituality play a role for the person who's supporting their loved one in recovery? So we're talking about, this is a huge topic, right? I'm sure there's going to be mixed uh, mixed uh, feelings when this is all said and done by the people listening to it. And that's, I love that. That's great. Um, you know, I'll say, and I've said this in any of the devotions we do on the Teen Challenge Facebook page or whatever, um, but man, if you don't know who Jesus is and you want to know who he is, look in the uh, episode notes, give us a call, shoot us an email. I would love to share with you who he is. Um, but, you know, as we're talking in the context of this, we're talking about if I'm the person in recovery, what does faith look like for me? But what does it look like for the people that surround that person? So, Mark, we'll, we'll start with you. Well, I think the first thing is that what spirituality does is it turns the fear that we live in into faith. And what I mean by that is instead of finding the need to control what that other person does, we find this amazing ability to let go of the need to control that and allow God to do his work. Because I think a lot of times us in our enabling and codependency interfere with God's work based in our fear. Mm. And what spirituality does is it opens that door to our ability to be willing to allow God to do the work that he has to do, even if it doesn't line up with the way I think it should be done. 
Absolutely. I think that Christian spirituality specifically offers an incredibly valuable resource to the person who's uh, supporting their loved one who's in recovery because um, what it does is it offers them an image of God, uh, of a God who is not judgmental towards his creation that has fallen, a God who is patient, who's long-suffering, who's enduring, who goes to all, to all lengths to help and support and, and to see uh, his creation flourish again. Um, so to behold God in Christ is to yourself be reshaped into his image and for you yourself to begin to live non-judgmentally with that person and to begin, like you just said, Mark, to be content and know that God is at work in their life and that you're not the, you're not God. You're not the one who's going to bring about all the change. You have to entrust their soul to the Lord and you have to trust yourself and your own emotions to the Lord in the process as well. That's really good. That's really good. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've gone through quite a bit uh, today and I want to kind of open it for you guys if there's any other areas you want to share on, you know, that, that we can hit on. But um, I think at the end of the day, the role of, of faith and recovery is tremendous. And there is an unbelievable opportunity um, for growth and, and a deepening and a, and a quickening uh, of our spirit man and an opportunity for us to connect with people as believers who don't know Christ, who are searching for truth. Um, you know, it's like having the answer to a pop quiz and you just want to give it to everybody and the teacher's cool with you giving the answer out. You know, they're totally okay with it. That's like the greatest thing in the world. It's this unbelievable gift. Um, and I think we have to take that seriously, you know. So, uh, Mark, is there anything else that you want to kind of throw in here at B before we wrap all this up? Not, the one thing is just, again, to kind of keep in mind that when we finally let go of the need to control someone else's life, we ourselves find freedom that we didn't have before and we can begin to find peace we can begin to find that serenity that's necessary so not only is faith tremendous in our recovery whether as the person with life controlling problem or the family i think it's vital yeah something i would like to just encourage our listeners with is um to kind of maybe reframe the way that they see that person in their life who has a life-controlling issue or an addiction and begin to see themselves in that person a little bit more. And what I mean by that is um, I've actually heard, I think, some of my own family members and some people, some good friends that I have who are now in recovery say that they are incredibly thankful and they thank God that this was an event that occurred in their life. And you kind of scratch your head and you go, why would you be thankful for some crazy thing like that? And they say because basically this illuminated to them how selfish they were and they would have never found a way out of their own selfishness and their own way of life had it not been for that glaringly obvious problem uh, that led them into uh, recovery and redemption. And so in, in such a backwards way that we don't normally think about, these people are huge gifts to us because they keep us from living our, uh, our, sta- our life where we just go on and we don't think that we have any problems. We think that we're... Um, we think that we're squeaky clean while they're, you know, they're the ones with the problems. I think if we allow them to be a gift to us, that we'll start to see we have things we need to recover from. Even though maybe my compulsion or my addiction is not as visible as theirs, I have them, and I need to work through them. And Christ's call to me, Christ's call is the same to me as it is to them. And they are not actually less holy than I am just because their addictions and compulsions are more visible. Um, so I think in, in maybe a, a way we don't normally think about they are a huge gift to us. They illuminate our need for Christ. Um, and if we allow them to, they teach us to be loving and gentle and non-judgmental. Well, I think the best way to end this is um, 
there's a really amazing ministry in uh, Manhattan, uh, New York. It's called the Father's Heart, and they um, they serve the homeless uh, in this incredible way. You know, the homeless line up. Um, they let so many in at a time so they could feed them, and they valet park their carts. Uh, they give them a, a ticket, you know, to go inside, and then somebody gets it for them, and they come out. And when they go in, they're served as much food as they want, and it's all fresh. It's all cooked. So it's no, like, bagged eggs or whatever. They're cracking eggs and making breakfast. They do this every Saturday. And, uh, you know, they go through this, and they have, like, a band playing, and they're doing it in English and in Spanish and all this kind of stuff. And then when they leave, they leave with a couple of bags of groceries. And the pastor that runs that organization, he tells everybody who comes in, Dad's not angry. He loves you, and he wants you to come home. And I think that that is the best way when we talk about what this is, man. If you're hearing this, know that your Heavenly Father is not angry. Amen. He loves you, and he wants you to come home. Thanks for spending this time with us. We will see you here in a couple weeks. Hope you're having a great day. The Support Recovery Podcast is sponsored by... Ozarks Teen Challenge, a 15-month residential program located in Branson, West Missouri. If you're a parent, relative, or friend of a young man who is struggling with addiction or other life-controlling issues, please call Ozarks Teen Challenge at 417-272-3784 for more information, or visit them at www.ozarksteenchallenge.com.